Thank you, Stuart. Right at the beginning, just so that you're aware, for those of us that might like to... You know the sheets that we sometimes get that you can fill in the gaps and things like that? There are some of those available up the back there and we'll, we'll make sure that there's you know, a couple of dozen. Uh, Andrew is flashing them about there. If you want to take a moment to go and grab one, there are certainly pens and pencils up there available too. Um, this sheet will apply for this week and next Sunday. So two Sundays sheet, if you like to take notes like that way, they will be available. And if we run out, we'll know we'll make some more for next week. So welcome to 40 Days in the Word. It's, um, it's already here and on us. And the, the process, and if you look at your In Touch this week, um, apart from a week off where our brother Raph will be bringing the word about the end of August, this, this process in 40 Days in the Word goes right through to into the beginning of October. So uh, we're... It's a, it's a fairly intensive time in that sense in, in that we'll be sitting uh, with this for some time and the heart of our 40 days in the Word journey will be what we do in our small groups. Uh, we're going to be looking at how to unlock the Word of God for yourself. How to, there'll be, uh, the, the program is actually running a little bit in tandem. What we do on the Sundays will not actually necessarily be hooked in directly to what we do in our small groups through the week. And, and they kind of uh, collaborate with each other, the, the two different things. What you'll be doing in the home groups, and somebody have been saying, oh, oh that first, first home study was a little bit hard to get, you, get my head around because the method of, of meditating on the word was a word by word. So if you have a verse and then you think about, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, then you go back and you kind of pick on a word like for <laughs> and, and explore that in your mind. And somebody say, oh, that was doing my head in a bit. That was a tough one. But over the weeks, we will look at a whole range of different ways of studying the word, meditating on the word personally, reflecting on the word. And there's bound to be something in there that will really click and connect with with each one of us in terms of what really works for us. That, that first one sounds like it comes a little bit out of the contemplative tradition, you know, where, where the, the contemplative uh, spiritualities in the body of Christ would spend perhaps a whole day or even days and weeks meditating on a very tight, short passage of scripture and, and just allowing the Holy Spirit to take them really deep into it. Uh, there's a DVD Bible studies and that's, that's really terrific. Now, huh? oh, and the other thing, sorry Bill, <laughs> to me. the other thing is uh, if you haven't already signed up uh, and you might not be wired up for the internet but if you sign up for the daily devotionals they are fairly uh, important in the overall scheme of things. There's um, about well, I think 40 different pastors uh, involved in putting those those devotionals together, um, and they'd be worthwhile. You can sign up and either get it sent as an SMS or an email to your phone or your computer, and the information on how to do that is in your in touch. 
Um, and you can actually nominate a date when you want that to start. If you sign up, you can say, I want it to start on such and such a date and it'll start coming through. So don't worry if you haven't actually begun. You, you can actually just tell it when you want it to start and, and then hook in with it as you go along because we are on a kind of a fortnightly as opposed to a weekly cycle. So just keep that in mind. You've got plenty of flexibility on how you interface with these things. Uh, then the third part of the Sunday messages is, is the Sunday messages. This is a fairly significant part and, and you can see the slide just laying out the general themes over each of our fortnights. Foundation, what is the purpose of the Bible? Josh is bringing that to us. Illumination, how can I see what God wants me to see? Interpretation, how do I know what it means? Integration, how do I integrate God's word into my life in work, family and finances, that kind of thing. And application, how can I use God's word effectively to make decisions, defeat temptation, find comfort, help others. On the back page this week there's a layout of uh, those weeks and uh, who's speaking. Uh, And today... We begin with inspiration. Why can I trust the Bible? The Bible is the most read book in history. It's the best selling book in history and it's the most translated book in history. So why is it the word of God? How do we know it is the word of God? Well, that familiar verse from 2 Timothy 3 for many of us says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. And that will be explained in another week. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if we look at that phrase, all scripture is God-breathed. The word in the Greek is theonustos. Theo meaning God and anustos meaning breathe, like pneumatic breath pneumatic tyre. Um, the, the, the Bible is God breathed. We see that in, in scripture a few times. Jesus when he sent out his disciples at the early part of the outset of his ministry he breathed on them. You know, We see that happen a few times in scripture. What does it mean? Some translations tra- translate that scripture as inspired that the Bible is inspired but not like an inspiring writer or an inspiring book. 2 Timothy 3 declares that God inspired this book. It is God-breathed, Theonustos. If I didn't have any breath, then I wouldn't have any voice apart from anything else. It might be a slight problem with life but that's not the point that Rick's making here. Uh, (laughs) I wouldn't have a voice if I couldn't breathe. So God's word is in every breath. The Bible is not just a great idea. It's not just kind of useful as a resource. It is God's actual word to us, him speaking to us. And Psalm 119 tells us this, all of your commands can be trusted. Everything in the Bible can be trusted as true because it comes from God. It's really interesting. Uh, The Bible is, if not one of the few, probably the only book in existence 
and particularly in terms of religious writings, that justifies itself and argues its authenticity from within itself. (laughs) So it says of itself, this is the inspired word of God. So, you know, right up front we're starting with pretty big claims. We can say anything about anything we like. We can put whatever spin we want on anything. And these are pretty, you, you know... Uh, it is a big claim that the Bible is the very word of God. It is a holy thing. Um, it's a huge claim that the Bible can be trusted absolutely. But how do I know this really? How do I know this is the word of God? It's just a book. you know. Just because the church says it's the word of God to varying degrees, you know, we can't even agree within the body of Christ, let alone outside. That it's not just a bunch of fables or stories because let's face it, some of that Old Testament stuff is pretty hard to, to believe as real. It's stuffed together, put together by nobodies. You know, the ancients, these mystical people. Actually, I wonder how many of us have really actually asked that question. For, for me, growing, raised within the church, um, it was... You know, the word of God was held as very precious. I, I love the, the spiritual formation of my childhood. And, and the word of God was absolute. You know, it, it, and life was black and white as a consequence because, you, you know, it was our guide for life. It was a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, we live in a culture, unlike, say, even in America, uh, where to a certain extent to start to approach people about the claims of Christ, we actually have to also get them across the point apologetically in a sense of helping them to understand why we might put so much trust in this book. Whereas in some other cultures they readily accept that as a kind of a foundational thing for their society. But how many of us ask this question, can I, can you and I personally, can we trust the Bible. We have people saying, oh, you know, some of this is just story, some of this it's all about interpretation and, and that's absolutely true and we look at that more closely in the weeks to come. Um, how can we say that absolutely everything that we see in the we don't even, the Catholics have a slightly different Bible to us. Some people argue about whether Philemon should be in the Bible or the Song of Solomon should be in the Bible. How can we trust this? And uh, it's a pretty essential question to ask if I'm going to study it, let alone purpose to live by it. Time magazine thought this was such an important question it put it on its front cover twice. Here's one. Sorry, mate, I'll just drop that down a bit for you. You told me. You did say it, didn't you? I, l- I like the feeling of being on, on mic, so Sorry. This was a cover that Time magazine said, uh, How True is the Bible? How true is the Bible? Time magazine embraced that, engaged that. It's a good question. How about this other one that they've done? Is the Bible fact or fiction? So it is out there. People, particularly in, in a kind of a vaguely Christian context, do live their lives and journey along and we have people saying well the Bible says this or we shouldn't do that and we're, not, we're against this and we stand for that on the basis of what we believe our, the word of God is saying to us. So people are asking these questions. We're going to look today to start off 40 Days in the Word on inspiration. 
How do I know I can trust the Bible? There are seven reasons and we'll begin to cover them today and I've actually orchestrated two endings to this message. So if we're doing okay for time, we've had a bit of a late start today, if we're doing okay for time we'll go to the proper ending that I've inserted. If not, we'll go to the earlier one. (laughs) So just uh, let, let me know when we get to where you think we should end. I can trust the Bible because, first one, it is historically accurate. That's an interesting one, but it is historically accurate. It's not just religious writings about doctrine or theology or morals or ethics. Yes, it is all of those things. You know, we have the wisdom literature and, and, and the law, and, but the, the story, the narrative in it about people and time and place is historically Accurate. It's actual history, real people, real places, real time. Keep in mind when looking into God's word, one essential fundamental about God. God cannot lie. God can't deny himself. God can't lie because God is truth. The Bible says this in Hebrews 6.18. It is impossible for God to lie because God is truth. Just going to go a little bit sideways here. It is impossible for God to lie because God is truth, which means anything he commands and controls is true all the time. And that is why the universe runs true all the time. Can you imagine if the law of gravity only worked on Tuesdays and Thursdays? (laughs) That'd be cool. We only had to go to work two days a week. The rest of the time we'd stay somewhere where there was a roof, I guess. It's kind of weird to think about that. We assume the law of gravity will will always kick in. It's always there. It's a really dependable, reliable thing that without our experience in life would be severely different. The law of physics are true. God thought them up. He created them. The laws of mathematics are true. I'm making a lot of declarations here. However, we we keep pushing on into this and it would be interesting just to hang in here with me uh, if I'm not supporting and apologeticking every little statement I declare because then we wouldn't get home today at all. God created the maths on which the universe runs. If this book has one lie in it, if this book has one lie in it, it is not God's book. It's not a book of God because God cannot lie. Psalm 33, 4 says this, The word of the Lord is right and true. It's not only true and right about salvation, it's true and right about history. It's not fairy stories in a land far, far away a long, long time ago. Actual history, real people, real places, real time. I'd like us to look at an insert from uh, Tom, Pastor Tom, who's at Saddleback, as he goes on to push in on this point just a little. So how do we know that the Bible's historically accurate? Well, by the same way you know any other history is accurate. You just go by the tests of good history. For instance, one of the ways that you test good history is, is it from eyewitness accounts? An historian would go in and say, is this written down by somebody who saw it, or is it second-hand or third-hand, or is it a legend written down a hundred years later? 
The Bible is primarily eyewitness accounts. That's why it's good history. Moses was there when the Red Sea split. Joshua was there when the walls of Jericho fell. The disciples of Jesus stood in the upper room, sat in the upper room, and saw the resurrected Jesus appear. And then they wrote down what happened, and we read about it. Matthew was there, and he wrote it down. John was there, and he wrote it down. Peter was there. He told a guy by the name of Mark. He wrote it down in the Gospel of Mark. And Luke talked to all of them, including Jesus' mother, and heard about what had happened. So it's eyewitness accounts of what had happened. Now, the other test of history by which we know the Bible is accurate is the extreme care with which the Bible is copied. You may have heard people say, you know, I'm sure it was right when it was first written, but it's been passed down generation after generation. All these changes have come in. You ever heard that? If you hear that, you know, someone hasn't just, just hasn't taken the time to study it, to look into it. Because when you look into it, you find out the extreme care with which the Bible is copied. The Old Testament copyists, the scribes, when they would copy these scrolls from one to the other, they would copy it like we would copy a Xerox copy. It had to be exact. And they had this long list of rules they had to go by to make sure that it was exact. Rules like when they had a scroll that had, the, had a specified number of columns throughout it, so it would always be the same. And the length of those columns always had to be from 48 to 60 in length. And it always had to be 30, exactly 30 letters wide, so they could always check it out. To make sure that it was always right, they had this rule that you had to copy letter by letter and not word by word. So that, well, you know, on your phone, like it does text prediction and sends the wrong word to somebody, the word you didn't want to send. They wanted to make sure that didn't happen. So they could only copy letter by letter. And they went by these tests to make sure that it was right after they copied it. They, they knew in a book how many letters of the alphabet were in each book. So, for instance, like our letter A... They would know that there were 1,653 A's in this book. And if it had 1,654 when they counted it, they threw the scroll away and they started over. They were so exact. They knew the middle letter of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. They knew the middle letter of the whole Old Testament. And after they copied all of this, they would go to that middle letter and count forward and backward. And if it didn't come out exactly the number it should, they'd throw it away and they'd start over. That's how exact they were. There's a lot of reasons we can, ways that we can see that they're exact. But one of the ways we can see is through something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. We've all heard of those. What's so significant about the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls were written about 100 years before Jesus. And they have in them copies of all of the Old Testament books, except Esther, all the other Old Testament books. When we found those scrolls, the earliest copies we had before that were from 900 years after Jesus of many of those books. So there's this thousand-year gap. All of a sudden, we get to check out how much change came in in those thousand years. You want to know how much? About 5%, and that was almost all and just in the spelling of words, the spelling of names. Over a thousand years, those copyists were proved to be right as they copied again and again and again and made it right. It's another proof of the historical accuracy of the Bible. Another proof is in archaeology. You look at archaeology and it proves again and again that the places and the people and all that the Bible talks about are true. It's not fiction. You can go and find these places. We've dug up these places. The Areopagus where Paul was, the theater in Athens where there was this riot, we've dug them up. We can see them today. The Pool of Siloam where the blind men was healed, portions of Herod's temple. All these places that are talked about in the Bible, they've dug them up. We can see them. The book of Acts is all about historical accuracy. Luke... An historian, as well as a doctor, as he wrote the book of Acts, he talks about 54 cities, 39 countries, and nine different islands, complete historical accuracy. 
One of the great things about how archaeology works with the Bible is how it's again and again shown that actually the Bible is more accurate than our ideas of history. There have been many times when we've had an idea of what's historical and said, well, the Bible must be wrong and the Bible's proved itself to be right. For instance, for a long time, historians said, well, we're not sure that guy named Solomon lived in the Old Testament. And we're certainly sure they didn't have horses like it talks about. They only had camels back then, so that can't be right. Until at Megiddo, they discovered one of Solomon's chariot cities with thousands of stalls for, guess what? Horses. So the Bible was proved right. One of the greatest, probably the greatest example of that is an empire called the Hittites. There's this whole empire called the Hittites talked about in the Bible that was not talked about anywhere else. So for centuries, historians said the Bible just made it up. Until in the early 1900s, a professor by the name of Hugo Winkler discovered at Bogoskoy 10,000 clay tablets at the capital of, guess what? The Hittites. Now, everyone believes in the Hittites. In fact, during a break in the game today, you can go on Wikipedia and you can read about the Hittites. <laughs> Read about the Hittites. Not only is the Bible historically accurate, every time archaeology backs it up, it is scientifically accurate. That's the second reason. The Bible is historically accurate and it is scientifically accurate. Uh, and that's slide 11. There is so much misunderstanding about this in the Word. Let's spend a bit of time on it. Okay, so we've got a fair slab to cover. So hang in there with me, because it's really kind of interesting, really. Uh, somebody who says the Bible is scientifically inaccurate has never studied the Bible. God established the laws of science so that it would be illogical for his word to contradict the laws of science. Once again, we're making big claims. The Bible is not a scientific textbook, obviously. You don't study the Bible to build a rocket. The Bible doesn't use scientific language. But the Bible never gives bad science. Not once in over 1600 years in which this book was written does it give bad science. In fact, the more science discovered, like Pastor Tom was saying, the more it reinforces biblical truth. Johannes Kepler, the famous mathematician and astronomer, said, science is simply thinking God's thoughts after him. Science is simply thinking God's thoughts after him. In other words, God established the laws of physics and then we discover them. God established the laws of biology and then we discover them. God established the laws of mathematics and we discover them. One reason we know the Bible can be trusted is because it is scientifically accurate. And the reason it's accurate is because the laws of the universe were placed there by God. Truth never changes. But guess what? Science is constantly changing, isn't it? Most of us have grown through our lives with unprecedented scientific advancement. Those of us that were lived in the 1900s, man, we have seen the scale of knowledge increase like that. You know, do you remember, those of us who are old enough to remember black and white television, do you remember watching that man land on the moon 
at school with all the TVs set up on the box, you know, these fuzzy black and white pictures being transmitted from the moon. And Stu, you were talking about, thank you for geekdom, um, you were talking about that, those amazing pictures being sent back from Pluto. And I can still remember watching this, this really fuzzy, bad black and white screen of this guy in kind of glossy white landing on the moon or walking on the moon. Wow, what a great way to spend a day at school. Um, it's fair to say that the science textbooks that I had at school would no longer be used today. We used to buy last year's textbooks off students. Well, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, not, nor is there much science in them taught. Much of the science, what the comment here is, that much of the science that was taught then is not actually believed today. Have you ever gone to a garage sale and seen the computer books that are really, really like 20 cents? Who wants a five-year-old computer book? I mean, you know, it's unbelievable. In fact, in medical science, you can't even wait long enough really with computers books, I don't think, until they become retro or vintage. There's really no point. You know, um, Things that were once considered healthy to digest now causes cancer, we're being told. Stuff that was once fine for a pregnant woman to take, now, ten years later, it's not fine. Science constantly changes. The Louvre Museum in Paris, they tell me, has a world-class library. There's a section in the library that has obsolete science books. There's a whole section for old, bad science books in the Louvre. And it holds the equivalent of over five and a half kilometres of useless books. That's a lot of old science. Scientific facts of 1,500 years ago would have proven 1,000 years ago. That which we believed 1,000 years ago was, was rediscovered and disproven uh, 750 years ago. What we believed 25 years ago, we don't believe today. What might they tell us this coming week? Uh, that we were told last year is true but now is no longer true. Rick makes this quote in that vid that we saw a part of. He said, if you had been reading the Bible a thousand years ago or 700 years ago or 500 years ago, what the Bible says would not have matched the science of that day anyway. doesn't matter when you're in the Bible, it would never have matched because science actually wasn't up to date. God has complete understanding and perfect knowledge even when we don't. And his rules, his laws, his frameworks never change. The Bible says in Psalm 148, let every created being, that's the whole universe, give praise to the Lord for he issued his command. God set these rules in motion, the laws, the thermodynamics, the laws of physics. They all came into being. He established them forever and ever and his orders will never be revoked. That's Psalm 148. The second law of thermodynamics, Rick says, doesn't work today and, and then work tomorrow. It doesn't kind of work like that. It always works. It is always true. And... The thing that sort of occurs to me, you know, facts always change. Have you noticed that? We've got the facts on this, and facts are always changing, but truth never does. If you've got truth, it never changes. It's again, it can't be truth if it changes. Facts may change, truth doesn't. Quote Rick again. Oh, yeah, I said pretty cool in brackets here. In 1861, 
there was a very famous book that came out called 51 Incontrovertible Proofs That the Bible is Scientifically Inaccurate in 1861. It's a very famous book, 51 Incontrovertible Scientific Facts that we know back in 1861 that the Bible does not agree with and it shows that the Bible is scientifically inaccurate. The problem is that today, 150 years later, you can't find a single scientist on the planet who would agree with any one of those incontrovertible facts. It's just so badly out of date and so inaccurate. They have all been disproven by science. Truth does not change. One of the proofs that we know the Bible is not simply man-made is what's not in it. If this were a human book, you would expect it to be filled with scientific facts of the day, but they're just not there. They're not in the book. For instance, for a thousand years, people believed that the earth was flat. Common one, isn't it? Then Copernicus and Galileo Galileo and Columbus came along and people realised the world was round. It's a sphere. It's a ball. Not a single verse in the Bible actually says that the earth is flat. There's imagery and stuff, as you know, but not a single verse declares that the earth is flat, not one. In fact, it says the exact opposite. 2,600 years ago, 2,600 years ago, in the Bible, the prophet Isaiah declared, God is enthroned above the sphere of the earth. Always remember that one. My grandfather quoted it all the time. Uh, Long before anybody knew it, written before anybody believed it, the word of God declared a truth, just a verse there in the Bible, the earth is round. For thousands of years people believed that the earth was held up by something. For instance, the Greeks believed the world was held up by that giant called Atlas. Do you remember that? Part of the Bible was written in Greek, but no giant Atlas ever appears in any of the Bible. Surely he would have got there somehow, but no, he's not there. For thousands of years the Hindus believed that the earth sat on the back of giant elephants and when the elephants moved, that's how you got the earthquakes. Okay? Fairly, fairly logical really because something had to be causing it. And, um, but some people might say, well, but what were the elephants standing on? Well, apparently the elephant stood on the back of a giant sea turtle and the giant sea turtle stood on the back of a giant sea serpent. This is very ancient belief, you know, but, but this is what we believed. The giant sea turtle stood on the back of a giant sea serpent who swam through a cosmic sea. That was the prevailing belief in the world for hundreds, if not thousands of years. People believed that the earth was held up for something. It's not in the Bible, uh, even though the Bible was being written during that time. Why? Because the Bible leaves out the lies. The Egyptians were brilliant. They built the the pyramids. They were masters of architecture, engineering, astronomy. But ancient Egypt believed that the earth was held up by five pillars. So they bought into the earth being held up by something, flat earth being held up. Moses, as Pharaoh's grandson, was schooled in all the prevailing wisdom and science of the ancient Egyptians. Yet not once in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible which Moses wrote, do you find that the earth is held up by five pillars. Why? I mean, think about it for a minute, wouldn't you? If it's the norm, if it's the prevailing thinking, if it's the science, wouldn't it kind of just get in there somehow? Wouldn't it filter in somehow? Just without thinking. You know, it's like saying, I'm going to the MCG. Well, everybody assumes, yeah, I know what you mean. You know, it's there. 
In Job 26.7, now this is, this is interesting, Job apparently is the oldest literature in existence in human history. The, the, the Old Testament book of Job was not only the oldest book in the Bible and, and written before anything else was written, but it's the oldest literature in existence in human history, the book of Job. In Job 26.7 it says this, God stretches the sky over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Wow. Who would have thought that? How would you dream that one up? Hangs the earth on nothing. Who told Job? How did he know that? Why? Because the Bible only always tells the truth. Truthfully, it is actually nonsense to say the Bible is scientifically inaccurate. When somebody says that, they're simply exposing their ignorance of the Bible. For years it was accepted, science, that there were about a thousand stars in the universe. Would you believe this? And I'll need to wind this up, I guess. And that the stars could be counted. 150 years BC, a man called Hipparchus counted them. He counted the stars in the sky, which was really terrific of him, and he wrote a very famous dissertation saying that there were exactly... 1,022 stars in the universe. Then 300 years later, so 150 years AD, a guy named Ptolemy does it again. He counted the stars and he comes out and says, Hipparchus is nuts. There aren't 1,022 stars in in the sky. Of course, we all know that. Ptolemy said there are actually 126 stars in the sky. He found four more, which was... You know, you needed that 300 years to find those four extra more stars. I mean, it sounds ludicrous to us, doesn't it, today? With our science now, in this day, astronomers are still finding new planets. And it is now widely accepted that there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on planet Earth. They cannot be counted. Back then, we didn't know that. Everybody accepted that there was 1,026. Yet 2,600 years ago in the Bible, God said to Jeremiah uh, and spoke through the prophet, the number of stars are infinite. Biology, chemistry, medicine. What does the Bible have to say? For many, many years, people believed that too much blood in your body made you sick. So doctors would cut a sick person and bleed them to make them well. That was how you'd help make them. This was accepted science. Everybody accepted it. Hippocrates came up with this thinking and for 2,000 years people believed that all illness came from four bodily fluids. Just hold your breath for a minute. Yellow bile, black bile, red blood or blue phlegm. Well, I'm glad that I don't have to worry about any of those kind of things in my body. What about you guys? Could you imagine? All that illness came from them. That's why they bled us. Apparently, these also these four fluids controlled your temperament. So there you go. Accepted science. It's little known, but the USA's first president, George Washington, actually had a heart problem. Well, I knew that people knew he had a heart problem. So his doctors, the very best an American president could get, bled him. He didn't get better, so a few days later they bled him again. He didn't improve, so a few days later they bled him a third time. George Washington died, not from his heart condition, but from blood loss. And that's the thing not many people necessarily would be aware of. 
Today we give blood, don't we? We have things called transfusions. We know that if we can give healthy blood, it can help people get healthy. We do exactly the opposite of what they did for thousands of years and good blood makes people feel better. That's where the life comes from. And thousands and thousands of years ago in Leviticus 17 it said, the life of every creature is in its blood. Are we happy to draw a line under it for this morning? We'll have to really get onto it next week. But you can see what this message is all about, spending a lot of time talking about accepted science and things like that and then we pop in a little verse. I'm not normally real comfortable with pulling verses out. You know, I like to see it within context and have the whole passage sit with me. But here are these clues. Here are these things impregnating the word of God, saying the most extraordinary things in a simple little verse that you don't really see as extraordinary until you think about it and take yourself back to that time. Who would have thought back then, thousands of years ago, that the life of every creature was in the blood? Who would have thought that the earth was actually a, a, a globe? He sits above the sphere of the earth, that he hangs it on nothing. <laughs> Unbelievable. And it's all there. It's all in our scripture and we haven't really even dug down to it yet. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, You are unbelievable. People say sometimes, well, who created God? Let's worship him. (laughs) We we, we found you. You are the I am. You are the same yesterday, today and forever. You are limitless. You are the Lord God Almighty. You are our precious Heavenly Father. How do we even get our heads around that one? You are transcendent, above and beyond us and yet you are imminent alongside us. You stick closer than a brother. So Lord, we are so blessed that you have come to us and revealed yourself to us and drawn us to yourself through your Holy Spirit's beckoning and through the blessed shed blood of Jesus Christ that through his blood the life of, of him the eternal life that was within him he can buy us back and we can become part of your eternal family as you always from the very beginning of human history declared that it should be we were never meant to be outside of your love of your sphere of grace of your family and so we find ourselves warm today those of us who know you Lord and love you and for those of us that are on a journey of discovery of you Lord we ask that you'd speak to our hearts and reveal to us by your Holy Spirit truths not just facts life not just living draw us along the path that you would have us go because it's a path that leads us home where we were always meant to be. You know each one of us by name. Every hair on our head is counted. You you have a precious love for us that is beyond our understanding. You know when when we rise and when we lie down. You know when we cross to the far side of the sea. Each one of us, how is it possible that such a God, there is such a God like that, but that is the only sort of God that we 
we'll worship and give our lives to is such a God like that. So minister to us through this week. Enable us to to glory in your presence in our everyday, your mighty, divine, glorious presence. Deign to draw near to us and walk every day with us. Thank you, Lord, for the God that you are, for the love that you are, that you have given us. And we give you honour and praise and glory today. And we ask, Lord, that you would inspire us by your Holy Spirit. That for those of us that love you with a passion and know you as our abiding Lord and Saviour, may we do you honour in, in the way that we live our life this week in declaring Christ to our world. Hear our prayer we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.